Welcome back to Beyond the Helmet. I'm your host, Steve McGrath, and in this week, I'm pleased to bring you my conversation with Randy Cross. Now, Randy, of course, covers college football for CBS. He's been in broadcasting for over 30 years, covering both college football and the NFL, and that came off the heels of him having an incredible career, three-time Super Bowl champion as a member of the 49ers. He was an All-American at UCLA and absolutely should be in the 49ers Hall of Fame, should have been on the 1980s All-Decade team. But all that aside, Randy has been in the NFL for over, or in football for over 50 years. And he took the time to tell me about his journey, some of the things he learned along the way. So without any further ado, here is Randy Cross. Now, it is my pleasure to be joined by someone that has spent more than half their life. At this point, we're at like 50 years of your life to the game of football. It is none other than Randy Cross. Randy, how are you doing today? I'm, uh, I'm doing really well. And the scary part of that is it's actually this year 52. Whew. So, yeah. Yeah, I know. You know it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's bad enough when I start counting how many years it's been since I retired. But, yeah, when I start <laughs> thinking about that, it's just, whoa. You know, I've had the pleasure of recently talking to Chris Dishman, who's been involved with football for 40 years. You know, Coach Jonathan Hayes, 40 years. I mean, to be around guys that have the incredible wealth of knowledge like yourself, it's really an honor. And as I told you before we jumped on here, um, I watched you on CBS. I grew up in the Boston area. I watched Patriots games my entire life. So your face and voice is something that uh, hits home for me. So again, thank you for taking the time. Sure, no, pro- no problem at all. It's kind of weird, uh, an ironic thing with football being as big a part of my life as it is because it was a total, total accident I ever even tried to play football. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, my dad took me out of public school in L.A. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. And he took me out of public school to put me into a private school, which I wasn't a big fan of that idea. Uh, it was a Catholic all-boys school at that. And uh, he told me, because I was just rebelling, no way, I'm not doing that. But, you know, I like girls. I got to go. I mean, I, co-ed's the way to go but, and all that. And he goes, no, sorry, you need this. He said, and go out for football. He goes, you, you don't know anybody in this school, right? I said, yeah. He goes, go out for football. By the time school starts, at least there'll be about 30 or 40 guys you'll know. And, you know, which is a – good number to know when you have an incoming class of about 90 so yeah it was uh it was an interesting time I wasn't I, I didn't particularly take to it right away so uh, from what I could gather you're tremendous at the shot put uh you'd later go on to be involved in rugby so you know, what how did you ultimately come around to to this game that would ultimately lead you down this incredible path yeah um well my my freshman football coach um was one of the teachers and it wasn't much there was a guy that was a 10th grader jv coach named harry welch and steve butler who became the head coach um they kind of between the two of them talked to me about what i could do and what i could could become or achieve um and they kind of convinced me but Man, I, all the running, all the, you know, just – and those that played high school football know that, you know, it is brutal. It really, really is. I mean, that's the hardest you work at any time in your football career is when you're in high school and they're just 
you know, where else do you have something where the coach goes, you know what, we're going to do conditioning and we're going to run till somebody pukes and then we're going to do four more. And you're like, yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, it's the only place where that would make sense. But um, yeah, it, it took me a year or two to get sort of used to it. I love, I was a big, big baseball guy. I loved baseball, pitching and catching and, Sandy Koufax was my idol growing up as a little kid. So, I mean, I was born in Brooklyn and raised in L.A. So the Dodgers were a big part of what a, my sports life. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So by the time you go to UCLA, you know, at, at that point, I, I think that maybe it, it was already written. You were going to be going as a football player. But, I mean, did you ever, as you got through high school, try to circle back to baseball? Uh, no, not really. I kind of threw my arm out coincidentally when I was about 14 years old. Oh, um, being a being a, a relief type guy, being used repeatedly didn't do wonders for my arm, which turned out to be a pretty good thing, you know. For yeah, me. Right. I, I went into the shot put, um, which that worked out really well. I mean, UCLA was one of the see UCLA and Texas were the two schools that recruited me just. Are, are for both football and track because they were both big track schools even now but even back then but um, Nebraska and Alabama were football only they didn't want anything to do with me throwing the shot put so there you go you're, you're able to stay pretty close to home at UCLA and you know the, the rocket ship takes off from there um, you know in today's day and age how many kids would transfer if they were on a nine-man rotating offensive line? I, I mean, that, that's such a deal-breaker for, for all these five-star and four-star recruits. But can you walk me through the mentality of playing, being an All-American by the time you're a senior at UCLA? And yeah. Coach Vermeil, who, of course, is a great, is running the show your last two years there. How do you just come to grips with just rotating, playing? I, I mean, center guard in general, there being a bunch of guys. Um, it's not what kids today would stand for. So what was the thought process yeah. back then on it? Well, I, I think also you got to give credit to a guy that was an, an amazing offensive line coach and would go on to, for 20-some-odd years, winning a bunch of games and bowls for UCLA, Terry Donahue, who played defensive tackle. I mean, probably one of the smallest defensive tackles that have played since the 60s. Um, Terry was our offensive line coach. And – he was probably the reason. The, the atmosphere around the team was one of the main reasons, I guess, that nine guys could do that. But I think it was a testament to how good a line coach Terry was that we had, well, basically two offensive lines. You know, we had one that I played right guard on the first line. And then every, I think it was two, two or three series, we'd go two series and then the second line would come in. And then I'd go to center. So I'd be at center for a couple series. Then the first line would come back in. I'd be the right guard, you know, on that, on that line. And it's highly unusual. I mean, highly unusual. We, needless to say, we got really good at wearing people out, especially, you know, we ran a come, uh, an offense then called the Houston Veer that was made famous by Bill Yeoman at Houston, University of Houston. And uh, we, we just killed people with that. Took it all the way to the Rose Bowl. Uh, so before we jump into the 49ers days, 
Do you, how vividly do you recall the 76 Rose Bowl where you're going up against this undefeated team, a team that had stuck it to you earlier that year in Ohio State where it's that animal named Archie Griffin who is just Ooh. destroying record books. You know, the, Woody Hayes, of course, a legend in his own right. How did you guys go into that? What was the mindset of getting revenge? And do you recall how you guys ultimately were able to prevail? Well, they had they had, they beat the wheels off us the first time we played in the in the Coliseum. I, I'll be nice and say it was forty-two to twenty-one. Might have been worse, um, but we played them again, and we were might have been twenty point seventeen to twenty point underdogs. I mean, it's one of the major upsets when you come back from that much. Uh, we were pretty sure we could beat them. I mean, they had amazing talent. Like you said, they had Archie, they had Cornelius. Uh, Green was their quarterback who was, you know, run and pass. Uh, Brian Bashnagel was a flanker for them that was pretty legendary. Great offensive line. Defense was really, really good. Um, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I think a lot of it, you know, had to do with the, the guys and the, the, the staff. You know, you look at that Rose Bowl coaching staff that Dick Vermeil had, most of them ended up in the NFL. Uh, most of them ended up on Super Bowl winning teams, and um, all of them were highly successful through their careers. So we were lucky to have a, be led by some some pretty incredible coaches, and we also have had some pretty good talent too, with John Shira and Wendell Tyler, Norm Anderson, and we had guys on defense like Cliff Frazier. We were uh, we were really good, which we hid extremely well the first time we played them. <laughs> Element of surprise. Uh, so you're able to, to ride that high, though. So personally, All-American, the team success. Now, when people think of the 49ers in the 80s, what an amazing ride. But your first few years there, things aren't really clicking the way that they ultimately do. How do you go from being up here to you're not winning as many games? It, was it hard yeah. for you to adjust to not just being a pro, but also dealing with losing? Um, yeah, you know, my first year, and I'll date myself in that the first two years of my career, there were only 14 regular season games. So my first year, we were eight and six. My second, we just barely missed the playoffs, and Monty Clark was the head coach. The next year, um, Kenny Meyer was our head coach, and we were five and nine. So they fired Monty, Eddie bought the team, DeBar Lowe. They hired Kenny Meyer, and uh, he got fired. We the next year we were two and fourteen, and they fired two head coaches that year. And then the next year was seventy nine. That's when they hired Bill Walsh, and it got pretty good, but not right away because we were two and fourteen right. again. Right. And then six. Then six and ten. Um, and you know, then it was sixteen and three in a Super Bowl. But, uh, yeah, it, but it made you appreciate it. I'd I, I be honest with you, I, if they'd have told me I had to go through that to get to where we got, I'd have agreed pretty wholeheartedly. But when you're going through it, the 2-14, and 14, I mean, our first 2-14 and 14 team, that might have been I, – I still think it's arguably one of the worst teams that's ever put on a uniform in the NFL. And, and then the next year, the two, Bills 2-14 two team might be the best 2-14 team ever. But, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting start before the, the winning started. Yeah, 
it's funny how the the record isn't the whole story, but at the end of the day, you know, that's all anyone cares about is, is the record. Mm-hmm. But in it, a bad two and fourteen team with, with Steve Deberg at quarterback and OJ Simpson at running back, it, it's hard to imagine that that team was really bad. But I, I, that's just how it works. Uh, but I wanted to it jump was into horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so. Coach Walsh, to say, had his work cut out for him. You know, he shows up, and the team isn't exactly clicking in all cylinders, and he doesn't get the wins right away. Do you recall from the time he showed up how he tried to change the culture and implement his style that ultimately would prove to be successful? Well, it was little things. It was incremental, you know, and I'm a bit biased in that he inherited four out of the five starting spots in the offensive line which helped, you know, a, quite a bit because um, sure. I had been center and I went to guard in 79 when he, he and Bob McKittrick came in. And so we had Keith Fonhorst, myself, Fred Corlin, and John Ayers. And the first year in 81, we got Dan Audick. But we rotated, you know, Ron Singleton and some different guys, Singleton. Um, but – it was by him, you know, I, I think it was mainly he was just piecing things together. He knew he could, he could get an offense going, uh, but he was going to have to probably draft a defense. And they drafted some in 79 and 80, some parts of it. Um, obviously, drafting Joe and Dwight in 79 was pretty good. Uh, but then in 81, that's when we really, between drafts and trades, you know, and signing some free agents. I mean, we signed, Dra- we signed Jack Reynolds. We signed Charlie Young. Um, you know, we got Fred Dean and Gary Big Hands Johnson and Big Louie Kelcher. Um, we had a slew of people join the team that year. And it was, uh, it was pretty special, pretty special. And to jump right into that first Super Bowl win that you guys have, I mean, how much of an impact does Fred Dean have coming in as just being, you know, a, essentially a pro, perennial Pro Bowl talent anyway to get that yeah. boost to your off? Uh, I'm sorry, your, your defensive line. I mean, that did that? Do you remember like in season feeling differently about the team knowing? Oh that yeah, that was- <laughs> first day of practice. First day of practice, he was torturing. Dan Oddick and anybody else we put at left tackle. I mean, torturing him in practice. We couldn't run drills because he was just disrupting it to the point where Bill was telling the defensive coaches, just give him something to drink and put him over there. Do, do not let him near my drills because I can't function. Um, and first game, that well, we got him, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday of the week. We played Dallas the first time that year when we blew their doors off at Candlestick. Um, and he had, and it's probably augmented uh, reality, which is also known as being old, so you don't remember correctly. But uh, I think it's four and a half sacks, his first game as a Niner, going against an all-pro left tackle and Pat Donovan. Um, and he, he was going crazy on Danny White. And we win that game. And we're, we're talking sacks and fumbles and recovery. I mean, from that minute he caught got on our team you knew well heck we knew the first day in practice we watched him in the first drill and went okay we're gonna be a lot better <laughs> next now uh, so of course personnel a huge piece of it bill walsh is 
obviously an innovator, <clears throat> excuse me, what he did on the offensive side of the ball. What are your thoughts on his leadership approach and what he did to get everyone to buy in and ultimately, you know, get you guys to believe that we're not a two and 14 team. I, I mean, to make that jump in two years from two and 14 to Super Bowl champs, it is a huge move for any club to make. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, he had I mean, the bones. Maybe it wasn't I mean, Coach Walsh. Was it players maybe? that? Well, no, I think, I, I think a lot of it was, was Bill. Part of it was the players and the, and the chemistry of all of us together and what that kind of created. But, you know, Bill had been with Paul Brown. Bill had been with – go down the list of the all-time legendary coaches that he'd been with. And he just kept learning and learning. And he did great at, at Stanford. And he came in. And you knew the offense – the plays worked. It just – as an offensive player, you, you did the offense and it gained yards. I mean, even – we knew we could move it on our defense. Of course, everybody moved the ball on our defense then in 79. But – we were doing some really special stuff. So, yeah, I really think his ability to challenge people on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you know, the, the ability to motivate individuals. It's one thing to motivate a group or motivate a team, but if you can motivate individuals individually, um, that's really the key in any business, especially in the business of sports. And he was the best I've ever been around at his ability. And it didn't take much. Sometimes it was a little – you know, sarcastic quip or joke or comment he'd make in the hallway or something. But, you know, he was, he was very, very good at it. And he, uh, he, would, he, he, he was able to keep you happy, keep you motivated, and keep you pissed off at the same time. And it's, it's, a, it's a unique skill to have. Quite the juggling act. Yeah, it is. Now, you guys win. And while you do, of course, go on to have a dynastic run through the 80s, you're, I know it's a shortened season, so maybe the player strike has something to do with it, but maybe a little bit of a Super Bowl hangover that following year? I mean, it um, wasn't... Yeah, you could say that. It might no, not I mean, have been I, obvious <laughs> that you guys well, were going to no, go was, on to win. That, the 81 team, up until Pontiac, Michigan, and our win over the Bengals, and we're world champions... I mean, it seemed like a blur. Next thing we knew, we were, we were on a bus driving back to the team hotel singing the Queen song, We Are the Champions, like over and over. We've got a you know, big radio up front. We got the, 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 to date ourselves, the cassette playing the song. <laughs> um, but we're listening to that. And as a group, I remember thinking, because we were in what we call next mode, which is you, you do it, you a game, a goal. Okay, next. What's next? What are we doing now? What's next? We got in that bus to go back to the hotel. There wasn't any next. So I guess I, as a group, we kind of decided that we were going to party like crazy. That was next. And we did that as well as we had done playing for six months. Um, and unfortunately for a lot of us, it lasted too long. You know, we had some guys on our team that basically never played for the team again. They just kind of disappeared. Um, Part of it was that offseason. Part of it was the craziness. The other part was the strike. You know, there were only nine regular season games that year. Um, we didn't make the tournament, they called it back then, uh, which was okay, I guess. Um, I had been injured in the offseason at a charity event, uh, which in and of itself was a, 
um, terrible experience for me personally. Um, I was at a place called Marine World Africa USA. <laughs> and there was this handlebar thing on a, on, a, on a wire that you had to grab and you went up, you, you went down. We were racing. I was racing a guy named Purvis Short who played for the Golden State Warriors. So I grabbed the thing and I go out there and I lose my grip and I fall and it's on this like waterbed um, that's floating down there to catch you for a fall. Well, I land with my leg underneath me and I look down at my foot and my Puma logo, which is from the side of my foot, is now turned sideways and is looking right at me. And I've completely dislocated my foot in. And I've, I've torn all the ligaments off the inside of my ankle. Um, to this day, I'm grateful for the, the great Willie McCovey was there as another one of the celebrities. And he had hands that looked like first baseman's mitts. And he was one of the first people down there after I got hurt. He grabs my foot and he turns it back into the position it's supposed to be in. And as it turned out, it was fantastic because the ligament itself got trapped inside, so it laid it flat. So when I got operated on, the doctor said there was no reduction in the ligament. It was, you know, it was they were able to move it and do everything with it. But I had a nearly a compound fracture of my fibula on the outside of my leg, um, tore the tendon sheath up my ankle for about six inches. It was Ooh. nasty. And that was on Memorial Day. So that was May 31st. So I played in the last preseason game in August, and I played all nine games that year, including the Pro Bowl later that year, with basically a busted leg. It, it didn't register as not being broken until when I checked in for my physical the next July. Wow. You know, that was the first x-ray I had taken where it wasn't, you know, gray, gray with a black line in the middle and nothing on the outside it just wouldn't it didn't heal right um but yeah that was uh that was a nasty experience that whole year was a nasty experience <laughs> it was better flushed out of uh, everyone's brains but 83 we played well 83 we ended up yeah. in the NFC championship game we lose to the redskins um another one of those to this day statements but i think we got job uh, a couple of pass interference calls against Eric Wright and Ronnie Lott that I thought weren't very good. And Mosley kicks a field goal and they beat us. But because of the way we lost in 83, it set up how good that team was going to be in the next year. And 84 was the best team I played on. It was the first team to ever win 18 games in a year. Um, it was uh, pretty special. Now, would you even say that you needed 82 to have the 83 that you had? Did you need to really bottom out as a team to get back and get the hunger back? Probably. Yeah, probably. It was, uh, you know, like I said earlier, we had more fun than allowed by law uh, in most states. And it was, it was pretty crazy. And Bill, Bill had trusted us. And that was the last time in, you know, the next six, seven years he would never trust a team like that again. And it was unfortunate because it was fun to see him and Jerry and they'd be at our parties and they were always around and we were all good buddies, but we destroyed that. And that was, you know, that was one of the regrets I think I have as a player was, you know, how 
how poorly we handled that situation. But I think for all of us, it might have been the best adjustment to a relationship we could ask for. Yeah, and that's, in my opinion anyway, the right way to look at it is, well, the situation is what it is, but what was learned from it? And ultimately, this path evolves where the relationship's a little bit different, but the success that you guys go on to have um, in 84, right, is by no means the end. It, it continues to roll through. You guys are just knocking on the door every year um, to phenomenal teams. I, I mean, to uh, LT's Giants. I, I know, I'm sure that the, you don't probably think too fondly of the Giants. You probably like Cincinnati a little bit better based off the success you might have had. Giants, Giants and the Bears. I, I, and I maintain to this day, there was a three-year stretch. And we lost to uh, the Bears in 85 and then the Giants in the playoffs. And then we lost to the Giants in the playoffs again the next year. But Niners were 18-1 and in, in 84. Bears were 18-1 and in 85. And Giants were 17-2. and And I tell people all the time, you know, if you want, you can tell me a better three-year stretch of teams than those three teams. You know, I'm not sure if the NFL has ever seen that kind of dominance out of those, those three teams. And that's during a period that on the bookends of those three teams, the Redskins won two Super Bowls. Yeah. So, yeah, they were uh, – of course, the Redskins won two. Two of their Super Bowls were the years of the strikes, which – Asterisk. You know, I think for them it's great. It's a Super Bowl. It's a Super Bowl. But not in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Now, for you guys to go on to win again in 88, um, by this point, you know, Coach Walsh is about a decade in with, with the 49ers. The players have to have changed now just because of the amount of time. How yeah, much did he – now, you already talked about how he had to change his relationship with the team in general based off of what happened after the first Super Bowl. That aside, was there anything different about his approach, his mentality, leadership style – from the, the bookend Super Bowls, the, you know, eight years between? Well, 88 was, and he has said that in all his books and everything else, 88 was the most challenging year of his career, I think. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. That's all the way around. Um, it was a, just a, a befuddlingly stupid performances by that team. I mean, at one point... Um, we were six and five and just about out of the playoff run. And then we sort of, as a group, you know, and that's the players decided that in spite of, you know, all the things we were complaining about, in spite of all the people we were complaining about, in spite of everything, including the guys we're playing, we were going to win. And we went on a, you know, four or five game winning streak and ended up, you know, again, in a, in a Super Bowl, especially after, you know, I thought one of the more gratifying wins was going to Chicago for that championship game that year and beating them in the so-called bear weather. Uh, yeah, another feather in your cap, right? Um, so w when ultimately did you make the decision to, to step away from the game? Did, did winning the Super Bowl help you make that decision? Did Coach Walsh's decision impact yours? I, I mean, do you recall – what that process was like for yeah. you? Well, it started um, right at the end of the regular season. 
beginning of the playoffs, I started thinking about it. Um, you know, I was, I was still playing pretty well. I mean, I was second team, all NFC. I was center as a center again by this time. And I was an alternate for the Pro Bowl. And, you know, I played pretty well. But I wasn't playing kind of at the level I thought I should play at. And it was bothering me. And we won the first playoff game. And I was standing on the sideline against Minnesota. And the game was clocks kind of counting down. And I'm standing on the sideline and I'm just looking around. I remember looking around and saying, you know what? This might be the last time I'm ever on this field as a player. And that's when not playing kind of really hit me. And uh, we went on next week. We beat Chicago in Chicago and go to the Super Bowl and stuff. But, you know, those, that was kind of the genesis of it. I know the Super Bowl week, I announced it at the uh, press conference. or media day was Wednesday back then, I think, or Tuesday. But I announced at the press conference. In fact, I remember walking out of the team meeting or the offensive line meeting, Bob McKittrick, our line coach, you know, was right there. And I said, hey, by the way, uh, when I go to this press conference, I'm announcing my retirement. And he looks at me like, what are you doing? You've got, you've got two, three years left. You don't even need to retire now. And I said, well, you know, I think it's time. And I had told Bill on the plane going to Miami and not being the sharpest tack on the pad, um, I didn't get sort of the meaning of what he told me after I told him I was retiring. And he's sitting there sipping on a glass of white wine. And I told him, and he kind of looked over at me, and he said, you know what? We win this game. There's no telling how long I'll be coaching. And sure enough, after the game, a couple, a week or two later, he's retiring. Um, but, no, I, I don't have much in the way of regrets. I didn't really look back much until I was on the sidelines at Candlestick in the 89 playoffs working for the NFL today. And it was the first, it was the divisional playoff game. And I was standing there looking at these guys going, damn it, they're going to do it again. I could, I could have been on another Super Bowl team. <laughs> but that was the first time it really hit me because I'd done, I'd worked games all year long. And back then they didn't let you do your old team. You always had to be uh, doing a team from somebody else. Right. So uh, I've, sort of framed a lot of this in terms of the, the team and how you guys were able to continually find success. But I'd really like to take the, the moment here to underscore almost every year throughout the 80s, regardless of what position you're playing, you are going to the Pro Bowl, your first or second team, all conference, all pro. You are one of the top offensive linemen, offensive linemen, guard, center. It didn't matter where you were playing the entire time. When you so you, you get the personal uh, acknowledgement while you're playing, there's the team success. How do you feel about not being, you know, getting the accolades of being even highly considered for the Hall of Fame or the team Hall of Fame? I, I mean, when you look at the all decade guys from the 80s, you compare favorably to those guys in terms of team success, accolades, and games played. I, I mean, are you sitting there pulling out your Hall of Fame hair? Like, what is it going to take? Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. It, it, it kind of gnaws at times, but, you know, it's a long time ago, things that I can really control. And man, that's the definition 
of you know something I can't control. I've I've been on say um, for what is it twenty five years? You come off that list and you go on to the veterans committee. So I've been on both those lists, but I've never really gotten close. Um, I, it's not my place, really, to, to say why. I, you know, I have my own theories. I have my own opinion as why, um, and I think a lot of it's based on no one at that time thought very highly of our line, our offense. You know, we were all considered kind of system guys. We were good because everybody was good. We were, you know, I was a good blocker because Joe could throw well. I was a good blocker because Jerry could catch well. I was a good blocker because Roger could run well. Um, go down that list. But we had, you know, Keith Vonhorst is another guy that was as good as anybody that played in his era. Um, John Ayers was as good as anybody that played in his era, as was Fred Quillen. But, you know, there was back then the whole press mentality, you know, the media that covered the NFL, you know, it was all East Coast. You know, it was smash mouth football. It was, you know, two or three of these national writers would sort of look down their nose at us like, yeah, you know, they're those guys, you know, they play different. You know, they don't smash people in the mouth every time. They'll actually have the audacity to run around people and, you know, cut block them or do different things. And we did things to people that they hated. We, there wasn't a group of offensive linemen in the history of the NFL that was responsible for more rules changes than that line and that coach, Bob McKittrick. And I guarantee you, you, you say the, the name Bob McKittrick to 90% of the media that's covered the NFL, they'll have a negative reaction. You say the name Bob McKittrick to 90% of the guys that played during that era, they would have an extremely negative reaction. Um, we loved him. We'd have, we'd have run through doors and done whatever he asked us. And, you know, whether people liked it or not, 99% of the time, we did do what he asked us. In a very high level, able to execute that assignment, the team overall able to execute on the field. So if it may have played a factor against the consideration that you've been able to receive, Certainly in the broadcasting end, it, it did not impede you because it, like you said, 89, you're back there on the sideline and you've been in the media covering football ever since. Yeah. You know, have you been able to do your part to, to vindicate Coach McKittrick? And just in general, how, how have you been able to just enjoy the ride of staying near the game and really, uh, from my perspective, providing tremendous value with your insight as something that I've enjoyed on multiple occasions? Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, you know, I say nice things about the guys I played with. I say nice things about the people that coached me. You know, 100% guilty as charged. Um, I just have always felt there has always been a, you know, we called it back then, and it's still appropriate in football most of the time. There's an East Coast bias in the NFL. If the teams are on the East Coast, they're automatically that much better. The players are that much more legendary. And it doesn't really, you know, you've got to, try, you've got to be a transcendent type, type person to get any attention if you're in the West Coast. And, you know, I'll be honest, I, 
it it does piss me off at times, but there's a there's nothing I can do about it, and uh, b there's not enough people still around that whole process that would even have anything close to a um, ability to have a conversation about it because they're either dead, retired, or I really wouldn't, wouldn't want to hear their opinion. So uh, it's, it's something that does sort of stick in my craw, but I, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers my kids. It doesn't bother me as much as it bothers my wife. <laughs> um, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Like I said, there's, there's nothing I can do about that. So I can, I go on football and I go on TV and I talk about football and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Well, that is what family is for, by the way, is making sure that they're there to fight the battles harder than you. So shout out to the, the cross family. But you know, when you look at everything you've been able to do for three decades covering the sport, did you have a certain, platform or medium what have you found that you like the best or, or dislike the most about just being a personality around the game yeah because it seems like it's been a pretty easy transition for you to get into there but you're still there so obviously you figured yeah. something out well i'm lucky it took me a while to figure this out but this is something you can either do or you can't do you can learn to be okay which means you can last a little bit um, if you learn to do it the right way. But if you're going to do it well for a long period of time, I think you're born with it. And it's something that kind of comes natural. And part of my advantage, if you will, is, you know, I was, I grew up in the TV movie business. My dad was an actor. So, you know, I grew up reading lines with my dad off a script. So maybe that was part of it. And, you know, I'm just conversant. And he told me from the very beginning of my athletic career, he said, learn to talk to the media, learn to talk to the press. He said, they'll, they'll go a long ways towards, you know, helping people, you know, figure out that you're pretty good at what you do. And uh, being adversarial with them does you absolutely zero good. So learn, learn how to get along with them. And I think I, I, think I did that. Uh, I think I, I speak my mind. And that's something I think people appreciate. Um, I've got to really, I've got to be, I guess, honestly, as a quirky kind of sense of humor, but you know, I, I crack me up a lot. <laughs> Sometimes I guess that comes across as funny, but, uh, that's part of it. And, you know, I don't take it really, really, really serious. I don't like listening to people talk about football that talk about it. Like, you know, the, the fate of the Western civilization depends on this sport or this game or this moment because you know what take a deep breath it ain't that serious now i'm sure that you have to feel really relieved with your podcast so the randy cross podcast is very well put together visually on youtube i mean whoever helped you on that they did a phenomenal job how much of a relief though is it for you to have control of your format your talking points are your talking points. You can talk as long as you want. I'm sure over the last yeah. few years, you've probably been pretty fulfilled with that. Yeah. You know, and recently, I've, I, everybody's got their own website. I've got randycross.com, and that's where my podcast kind of lives. Um, but when I was playing, starting in right after that injury at that amusement park, 
Um, I had a good friend that was running a TV, a radio station in San Francisco called KSFO. And he asked me if I wanted to do some morning sports. He says, we'll send a car for you. I was on crutches. He goes, we'll send a car for you. And you go in and you actually rip the news off the AP or whatever, the machine. It, it was a teletype machine. It all came up. You ripped it off and you read it on the radio. So I did that for a week or two. And that was my first exposure. And right after that, in 83, I think, I started doing a radio show for KCBS called uh, Crosstalk. <laughs> Unique title. Um, but then and the year after, so probably starting in 84, I started doing radio and TV. I did my own TV show, which I sort of put together myself. And I had a great company um, that I worked with initially called uh, GGP, Golden Gators Production, out in the Bay Area, that helped me with my show for a couple of years. And I learned enough to kind of take it over and start doing it myself. Uh, um, so I did that before I ever retired from football. And I did USFL games uh, for two years when I was in the Bay Area because they had a TV contract that said locally you had to have a TV station broadcast your games, even though it was on a national format. So I got to do USFL games um, with, a, with a guy by the name of Barry Tompkins, famous for tennis and boxing, a lot of various things. But he taught me well as to, well, when to shut up. Because when you're, when you're a young analyst, you think you need to talk all the time, but you don't. Um, but I, I had a pretty good amount of experience before I ever got to, you know, getting out of the pros and wanted to go into the media. That's awesome. Um, and this year, this upcoming season, you're still going to be doing CBS uh, covering it in some sort of capacity? Yeah. Yeah, I do actually college football. I did the NFL for 20 years. Um, and they, uh, those in charge all the way around decided it was probably better if I did college football. So I've been doing college football the last 11 years. Uh, I do all the Navy home games and then a sprinkling of other um, games. And there's a Tuesday night highlight preview show called Inside College Football on CBS Sports Network that I've been doing now for about a decade uh, with Brian Jones and Aaron Taylor and Rick New Heisel and Adam Zucker, who's the host. And that's about as much fun as allowable by law. Again, um, it's, it's not work. We got a great producer in Tim Weinkoff who lets us kind of do our things. And it's, 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 it's a whole night of therapy for four X players and a host who gets to just kind of have a great time. So yeah, I'm still very involved. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun way to make a living. I, it's the most fun you can legally have. Yes, yes, I agree. I would like to, to just close this with this little thing I call the gauntlet. Uh, it's a couple quick hitter questions I have for you. But I just want to ask one more question before we hit that. And that is, okay. now, uh, under the assumption that college football would normally be played the entire year, were there any particular young athletes or particular teams outside maybe of UCLA that you were really looking forward to seeing playing this year? Well, I was really looking forward to seeing Clemson. And I'm going to see Clemson because as of now, Clemson will be playing. Um, you know, and, and Alabama, that's kind of the, the usual. I'm really intrigued by LSU. 
and the amount of talent that um, Ed Ogeron and that staff has got down in Baton Rouge. But, you know, what, a dozen, 15 guys are in pro rosters right now uh, off that team, and you're trying to replace not only a Heisman Trophy winner, but Joe Burrow threw 60 touchdowns. The second-best quarterback in college football was Tua Tagovailoa, and he threw 30 touchdowns. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sick what this guy did. So, you know, you're Miles Brennan. You're replacing the Heisman Trophy winner. Normally, you'd say, gee, can you replace Joe? No, hell no, you can't replace him. You can't replace half his stats. I mean, yep. as a young guy, you can re replace a third of his stats. So I'm, if there's one story in football this year that I'm really curious to see how it goes, um, besides the obvious one, that 76 are playing and 54 aren't. But uh, I'm really intrigued by LSU and what they're going to be like on the field. Oh, yeah. I, I can't wait to watch either. Uh, certainly, this is going to show what kind of stuff uh, are they really made of because this is no easy task. You, you can liken it to a 2-14 and 14 team that Coach Walsh had to you know, see what he could do with. And, you know, hey, it, maybe if uh, Coach Orgeron's lucky, uh, he's going to be able to have a, anything close to that same line of success. Um, but anyway, Randy, I, I just want to ask you a couple quick questions. It, it's this little thing sure. we call the gauntlet. What's most important in winning? Is it the number one offense or the number one defense? Uh... I got to be frank, um, defense. Fair enough. Now, defense. this is we an impossible. ball and scored, but we didn't win until we got a good defense. <laughs> From someone that knows offense, everyone should be listening to that. Now, a tall task <laughs> considering everything that you've been able to do, but was, did you have a favorite football memory? Um. Gosh, kind of like I tell people all the time, they ask me about Super Bowls, and I say, well, I have three kids too, so I can't really pick my favorite kid or my favorite team or Super Bowl. Um, you know, it's little, it's little things. It's the accomplishment as a group. It's, it's being in those locker rooms after those huge games. Um, you know, I'll be grateful to the day I die for – having getting to be associated with so many amazing people and, and players and coaches and Eddie DeBarlow buying that team, which enabled everybody to do what they did. Uh, you know, I, some of my most fond memories are just conversations and they, they happen not so much with the players, but with guys like Eddie or Bill, um, Bill was approachable. You could always talk to Bill and, you know, when Bill wasn't around anymore, you really learned that you lost something really special. Now, who was harder to block, Charles Haley or Fred Dean? Yeah, you know, I was lucky. I never had to block those guys. So, <laughs> I figured being uh, on the inside. They would say yes, uh, the guys that did, uh, both. Yeah, uh, right. You know, it's, it's kind of like comparing, you know, eras are eras, and that's an era. Charles yeah. Haley was the Fred Dean. Fred Dean was the Fred Dean of the 70s and early and 80s. And Charles Haley was the late 80s into the 90s. Um, same kind of player, a little bit bigger, maybe not quite as strong as Fred. Fred had just ungodly natural uh, ability and strength. Um, 
but I don't, there's no wrong answer. So I won't give one. Which is why I need to follow that up with which is more important. Is it the players or is it the scheme? Uh, I say yes. The marriage. <laughs> it's, the, it's the marriage it of is. the two. That's the most important thing to win. Because we beat the crap out of a lot of really talented teams. And we beat a lot of teams by close margins in the last minutes um, that were really, really talented because of that combination. So you, one, one can't be separated from the other. But you need guys to make the catch. As good as the scheme yeah, is, you, you need the guy. Yeah. Talent, talent does help a scheme. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah, does. yeah, and, and we we've seen that. God knows we've seen a lot that a lot of that. Um, but the great players come. It's just that that unusual sort of convergence when the great scheme and the great players meet up. You know, whether it's Brady and Belichick or Montana and Walsh, or you know, go down the list. You know, it's but Buddy Ryan coming to the Chicago Bears and. They didn't get along, but the fact that he and Mike Ditka found a way to make that whole thing work and that crazy dynamic of the Bears, you know, they couldn't have done that with, with those players, but I guarantee you those players wouldn't have achieved anything without guys like Ditka and Buddy Ryan around. 100%. Um, so lastly, Randy, I think it's the most important question I could ask you, and it's just given the incredible amount of success that you've had in your career, in your life, What's the best piece of advice that you'd give to a young student athlete today? Um, a young student athlete, I would say worry about the student side because the athletic, the athlete side is going to take care of itself. You know, you, you hear all the cliches these days of the training regimens and, you know, the coaches and the advisors and the sports psychologists and all that stuff. That, that side is going to take care of itself. You're going to work. What God gives you, you're going to take advantage of. And if you don't, it's your fault. Um, but the school side, the learning side, is something you're going to have your entire life. So, you know, treat it, treat it as a special gift it is. Well, there you have it. Randy, I can't thank you enough.